Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, filling in as always, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. You can find it right here on YouTube. I am excited to be joined uh, today by Shahid Batar. He was the 2020 primary challenger to Nancy Pelosi uh, from California. Shahid, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm hanging in. You know, I have my health, which is more than entirely too many Americans can say at the moment. So I'm thankful. Absolutely. I mean, there are a million things that we should talk about. I know you and I, have, we've been trying to connect and, you know, talk and listen to your voice as you were running in those primaries. Um, and so I do want to talk to you about that. But I think you make a great point as to how many people are struggling right now. Um, could you speak about your feelings towards uh, the Congress, the Senate, the, the, the bailout, the $2,000 checks, and just the condition of the American people, particularly the working class? We're in a crisis with so many layered dimensions that I think people often forget just how bad it is right now. Many of us have privileges. You know, one of mine is that I'm healthy right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, another of mine is that I have some educational privilege. I think a lot of people at the moment are dealing with one dimension of challenges, whether it might be, for instance, a health crisis in their family, right? Any number of people, uh, 300,000 in fact, have found their way to early grades and 22 million Americans are infected at the moment, and every one of those people has family members who are concerned about them. But then add to that the eviction crisis right. that is building and, and spreading across the country. I've been volunteering at the SF Marin Food Bank. I've seen lines around the corner. I've seen videos online of lines at food banks that go down the highway. Mm. And the fact that Congress isn't convened right now, I mean, the stimulus payments that have been debated are remain entirely inadequate, and they haven't even been passed yet. You know, we need an ongoing universal basic income program, we need rent and mortgage relief, and we need Medicare for all. Those are just the beginnings of a response. I think we also forget how hollowed out the American middle class and working classes have grown uh, or been reduced, let's say, over the course of decades of predation by Wall Street, supported by corporate politicians from both parties. Mm. And in your campaign, you highlighted much of what you just said, right? That, that the concern and uh, the compassion for working people across this country really animated your campaign. Tell us about your campaign and particularly the aftermath. Um, you weren't able to be victorious this time, uh, but you know, it, from the looks of it, you don't plan on going anywhere. I appreciate that. So yeah, I was the general election challenger to Nancy Pelosi in November, 2020. I was the first Democrat that she ever faced in her 30 year career. And we won 81,000 votes from San Franciscans to win a new voice in Congress aligned with not just the working people of the United States, but I also would put on the table there international human rights, international climate justice, the future ultimately. And I'm not a politician, I'm an advocate. I've been a public interest lawyer, particularly fighting police departments and intelligence agencies for the last decade. Mm. Uh, and I'm basically so alarmed by our country having been steered off the rails that I suspended my career to jump into this race in 2018. So I've been in three elections, two races in 2018 and 2020. I won the 2020 primary alongside Nancy Pelosi in our top two system here in California. And in each of the elections I've been in, we've doubled 
our vote count. In fact, between March and November 2020, we went from 33,000 votes to 81,000 votes, so much more than merely doubling. And that suggests to me that we're well on our way to liberating this seat in 2022. I haven't yet formally announced my plans. Uh, May I put this out to your listeners? If folks want to see me run, uh, we're inviting the support to make that possible. You know, I don't have a political party behind me. Uh, so, you know, we're entirely reliant on the grassroots to make it happen. Uh, but I am remaining committed to holding Washington accountable, whatever that looks like. And I do hope to represent my city in Congress if I have the opportunity. Well, um, let's let's shift gears a little bit um, and talk about um, other issues that are happening across the globe. Let's uh, and actually, before I even go to, I wanted to speak about Julian Assange. Uh, but before we go there, let's talk about what's happening right here in our capital: uh, the undermining of democracy, um, the white supremacy that we saw marching and storming the gates of the Capitol. Uh, what are you What are you seeing from your perspective? I see an assault on the republic, which entirely was predictable. There was a whistleblower in 2004 who left the FBI, his name's Michael German, and he spent 17 years infiltrating white nationalist, white supremacist groups across the United States. In 2004, he quit to blow a whistle, join the ACLU, and said that there was massive organizing across a militia movement that the FBI was ignoring because it was too busy chasing Muslims and animal rights Mm -hmm. activists and inflating false threats based on those sorts of like entrapment scenarios. Uh, And so nothing of last week should particularly surprise us. I do think the part that we should be especially alarmed about is the pattern that every preceding national security crisis has begat. Within days of the 9-11 attacks, proposals appeared off the shelf, pre-written proposals that ultimately became the USA Patriot Act that in 20 years have still never been the object of a transparent debate. Mm. And we should not fall prey to the ruse of security theater promoted by the military industrial policing complex to expand executive powers in response to this very legitimate crisis. There are plenty of laws that criminalize mobbing the Capitol and ransacking it. There are plenty of laws that criminalize violating the oath of office to invite that kind of violence. Mm -hmm. Those laws don't need to be expanded. The failures that we saw were failures of the executive branch Mm -hmm. failures of police departments and the Pentagon. And the appropriate remedy for that failure is internal investigation and accountability, meaning some people need to get fired and they need to be replaced and we need to have that kind of internal process. Expanding new laws to then give new pretexts for ways that dissent could in the future be further marginalized is, is not the answer. And I'm very wary of that pattern. I know that too many members of Congress don't appreciate civil liberties. I know that they're scared personally, and I totally get that. But fear is a bad place from which to legislate. They need to remember the oath of office. And we all need to remember the importance of guarding civil liberties, especially in a time of crisis. Right. I mean, just to echo what you're saying, I mean, if you're if you're thinking about the potential of expanding the executive branch's power uh, as a response to this, uh, it is the executive branch, particularly the president, right, the chief executive who inflamed the situation. And this is just the result of his usage of social media in many regards. So the last thing we want to do is put more power in their hands. But I digress. The next question, speaking of civil liberties, um, is the conversation about Julian Assange in in some very direct ways. Um, the recent trial that uh, revoked the extradition treaty or revoked the request for extradition, keeping him uh, from coming to the United States. Uh, let's touch on that a few minutes before uh, our time is up here. What were your thoughts on that decision and the implications for um, civil liberties? It's great on the one hand 
that the UK chose not to extradite Assange to the US. That's incredibly important because what that means functionally is that the right of the press to report on state secrets <clears throat> maintains some space. Unfortunately, the decision wasn't that robust. The UK didn't decide not to extradite him because they stood for the right of the press to publish state secrets. And it's worth putting this on the table. People remember a lot of things about Julian Assange and they think a lot of things about Julian Assange. When I think of Julian Assange, I think of the collateral murder video. And this mm. was a murder video that WikiLeaks posted that the US government had suppressed. And it shows US military officers gunning down journalists, laughing about it, and then covering it up. And it's wow. incredibly important for that kind of information to have a chance to see the light of day. And the prosecution of Julian Assange is the first time that a publisher has been targeted for espionage act right. violations. That's an incredible threat, not just to the press, but to democracy. It's an attack on democracy, not unlike the attack on the Capitol, frankly. Right, right. right? And now the vindication of Assange isn't a full-throated vindication because what the UK court did was essentially a defer to the US on all the substantive questions and then find kind of like busting Al Capone for tax evasion, something of a, not exactly a legal loophole, but the reason that they chose not to extradite Assange is because the conditions of confinement in US prisons are so inhumane right. that they didn't wanna let him see effectively be tortured here in the United States and right. be left subject to potential suicide knowing that he wouldn't get a fair trial. So it is the illegitimacy of our own justice, so-called justice system, that drove the UK to say, even if all this stuff was true, we can't we trust you yes. and your commitments to human rights enough to let this person be sent there. And that's in some ways an even more damning indictment of, right. of the United States. And I would just wish to see the international community strongly stand behind the right of publishers and journalists to publish state secrets. And it's an incredibly important principle that remains very much in crisis and under threat. Right. One last thing before our time is up here. You ran in 2020 and you're uh, possibly considering 2022. Can you very quickly tell us um, what your strategy is to win in 2022 and how everyone can get up with you? So one of those pieces of the strategy is going to have to look like holding the Democratic Party accountable. I ran as a Democrat. I'm openly exploring partisan affiliations. Like what is the voice that I can best represent in this city? Uh, it doesn't involve running against an establishment that stretches well beyond the speaker to include a number of organizations here in San Francisco that unfortunately defend and promote the establishment in the face of the values and concerns that draw the future together. And folks can check us out online and support a potential 2022 run at shahidforchange.us or on any of the major social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube at Shahid for Change. Shahid Batar, thanks so much for joining me. Best of luck with everything you're working on. I appreciate it, Benjamin. Keep up the great work. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Pleasure's ours. Welcome back to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, again, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. You can find me here on YouTube. I'm excited this afternoon to be joined by Paul O'Brien. He's the vice president of Oxfam America. And uh, he is the author of the new book, Power Switch, how we can reverse the extreme income or how we can reverse extreme income inequality. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Benjamin. The pleasure is ours. I am um, familiar with the focus of the work of Oxfam America, uh, particularly the work to fight against income inequality, but particularly poverty. Could you tell the audience about the efforts that you uh, engage in at Oxfam? 
Yeah, sure. So we are a worldwide influencing network of Oxfams, many of which now are their own independent boards in places like India, Brazil, South Africa, China. They work with us here in the US and in, in other Northern European countries to try and shape answers to the systemic roots of poverty. So we used to be one of these organizations that essentially brought stuff from the rich parts of the world and tried to get it to the poor parts of the world. But we eventually realized that really wasn't making it uh, A, enough difference, and B, we were ignoring the stuff in our own backyards. Mm. So now we're this worldwide influencing network. Yes, we still try to meet real needs in real time, but it's a much smaller part of our work. What we what we do now a lot is analyze what is driving poverty and try and force policymakers, both in the United States and in those countries that I mentioned, to tackle it. And the big thing that we've sort of put our finger on in the last decade is that extreme inequality is driving many of the problems we see in our world, including what we've seen in this country in the last few days. Mm. You know, this is a fascinating conversation for me because one of the things I um, just kind of casually observed is something that you all actually work on. Poverty is a policy decision, right? Um, homelessness is a policy decision. It's not as though we do not have enough resources to actually make sure that this level of poverty doesn't exist. Could you speak about that from a policy perspective and not even policy so much as the choices that allow poverty to continue to exist? Well, I love that framing. Thanks, Benjamin, because we agree with you entirely. It is about choice. It's about the policy decisions that drive uh, ultimate outcomes for people who are either milking it or who are on the wrong end of power equations. So, you know, where to start? Just take this pandemic uh, and what we've been seeing because of the kind of policy choices that were made even coming into the pandemic. Uh, those who already were super wealthy, made out like bandits. One of mm. the pieces of Oxfam research was that if Jeff Bezos chose to, he could literally walk around to every single one of his, at the time we did the research late last year, 875,000 employees in hand, yeah. each of them, a $105,000 check, and still have more money than he started the pandemic with in March. Like wow. that's just his excess profits during the pandemic. That's 105 grand to nearly a million people. So what we are sort of seeing and have tried to analyze and raise attention to is how much folks who already have too much power, too much wealth, are able to use the lack of good policy frameworks to get more. Right. And at the same time, we're not seeing the kind of real commitment to addressing and literally switching power, switching where uh, wealth lies so that more people, uh, working people, people of all colors uh, and, uh, and uh, particularly in the working class have a greater opportunity both to live the American dream, but to lift themselves out of poverty all around the world. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I noticed the passion with which you speak when you talk about those policy choices and the type of um, income inequality, the wealth that was amassed by Jeff Bezos during this. I mean, it is enough to make you um, that upset. But we, you know, underneath these policy decisions is the idea that greed is good. That greed and the pursuit of profit at all expenses um, is is how this system should work. So what what do you all, you know, in terms of policy and what you're fighting for at Oxfam, how do you approach this in terms of changing the hearts and the minds, not only of the people, but also the leadership in terms of policy that could reverse poverty? Yes, lovely. 
So um, in the end of the day, Oxfam is a very optimistic organization. I am an optimistic person. I wrote Power Switch because I believe we reached a moment in history where we are waking up to the fact that the economic model that said greed is good is now essentially bankrupt. It's bankrupting the planet, but it's also bankrupt in terms of having a political mandate that is making enough people feel, hey, you know what? I'm getting my chance at the dream. What we saw in this election, I wrote this book, I took a chance, the publisher took a chance. I said, you know, the Trump idea and argument isn't gonna win. They may get out a lot of votes, but there are more people in this country who are either moderates or who are progressives coming from all different colors and from all different issues. And they are gonna show up. They're gonna show up uh, in states in the Senate elections and they're gonna show up in the presidency and they are going to deliver a power switch. So I'm not interested in the question, will Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win? I'm interested in the question, what are we gonna do with that once they're in power? And our optimistic analysis is that the folks who just got elected in both the Senate and in the White House are going to say, you know what, we can't just normalize things and expect the people who got us elected in Georgia and around the country to be happy. We're going to have to go to the next level. We're going to have yeah. to come up with new economic models outside of greed is good and let's just make sure people at the top do well. So what the book lays out, and I'm basically borrowing a lot of Oxfam ideas, is what are all the policies that we are going to need in place to actually redistribute income and opportunities so more people can enjoy the benefits of this uh, economy and society. The name of the book is Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality. Give us some of those things that, that you talk about in the book that can actually be done to reverse this income inequality. Well, the heart of it is, you know, power. It's a lot of it's about political power and how that works. We're seeing that happen at the moment, but it's also about money. We've got to get to the heart of how money flows, how it politically captures our uh, our system and how it mm. either creates opportunity or denies it. So we've got to ask, where's the big money and how are we going to? Uh, get out of tinkering around the edges and reinvest in people all around the world uh, to give them more economic opportunity. The United States plays this completely outsized role, even for the size of its economy. If U.S. leadership decided to do so, it could unlock literally trillions of dollars to stop people falling into poverty, either by creating global reserves, by canceling debt, by making deals with uh, countries on how they uh, start to manage their economies going forward. Perhaps the single thing I'd say to you that's gonna be most important, that again, the US is the big player, is how do we end this pandemic? How do the vaccines, most of which are being produced in the United States safely at the moment, how do they get to countries, not just to elites, who sit at the top of the food chain in all places in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, but everywhere. What is the U.S. going to do to make sure that the solutions we find now in terms of economics, in terms of vaccines are shared generally? So that's what the book is about. It's a lot of what Oxfam is working on. And uh, it feels meaningful in this moment and full of promise. Mm. Mm. And no, that and and it sounds it, it sounds exciting in just the way you're conveying it. To be quite honest with you, um, but in terms of like the steps, what do you what do you, what what's next? Like in in terms of your analysis and your work at Oxfam, what is the next most practical step in terms of turning this country and and quite frankly this this planet around as it pertains to poverty? Because that seems like a utopian idea, yes. but as you have been drilling down and studying it, you have to have these next couple of steps already, you already know what we need to do. So tell okay. us, what are, what are some well, of those steps? Yeah, okay. I, in the, I go into more detail in the book, but in the, the short of it is progressives, particularly progressives, cannot rest now, even after the big victories of the last couple of months. We are going to have to lock in 
quick wins early on in the Biden administration. We're going to have to insist the Biden administration cancel the Muslim ban, stop mm. discriminating against people from sub-Saharan Africa, refugees, end the return to Mexico policy. We're going to have to get more people to realize we can get quick. We've got to deal with gender justice and kill the global gag rule. We've got mm. to get quick wins, which we can basically do, by the way, without waiting for Congress. Once you build up that momentum, we've got to start talking with this new Senate and Congress to deliver economic solutions for Americans and around the world. And that can be done in the first 100 days, as long as they don't think they're just trying to revert things to normal. Because in the end of the day, Joe Biden is essentially a moderate kind of guy. Progressives are going to have to step up right now and over the coming months, which is why I love your show, because I do think you're pushing people to act, not just to talk. Um, and and to do so in a progressive way. And I think that that's what it's going to take, a lot of progressive energy now, not to declare victory too soon. Mm. Uh, and that's so important. Could you take, we have a couple of minutes here, love. Could you take a moment and, and tell the audience like what they can do then, right? Uh, what they can do to help yeah. in this fight um, as an individual, because sometimes it feels hopeless. And if you could, with the last time that you have, if you would tell them how they can get your book and how they can get up with you. Yes. Um, so you can get it in most independent bookstores. It's called Power Switch. It does lay the last chapters, lay out some guidance for activists on what they shouldn't waste their time doing and what they should be thinking about doing, how to exercise influence and power right now in this moment. It's still going to be about national and state and municipal level politics at some level. It's still going to be about community organizing to get our issues across the line. It's still going to be coming together across our issues where black, brown, white people are going to work together across different issues, climate activists, gender activists. We're going to have to bring together that big tent. Um, yeah. And there are very specific suggestions in the book on how to do that. So I, I'm really glad that you, you, you offered me that chance to say, hey, give the book a, a read. If you like it, check me out on redistributepower at gmail.com. That's there what I'm is. all about. And I'd love to have a conversation with anyone who's reading it. I absolutely love I absolutely love your energy and I'm definitely going to pick up the book myself uh, and I look forward to your continued work and all that you're doing. Thanks so much, uh, Paul. Um, thank you so much for what you're doing at Oxfam and what you're doing against the fight against poverty. Thanks, Benjamin. And thanks for your show and good luck in the year to come. It's going to be a tough time for a lot of people, but also hopefully a time of hope and transformation.